We're joined this morning on Think Tank for the last time that I run run this show. Very glad to have Eric Cam, professor and director of international economics and finance undergrad program at Toronto Metropolitan University and counselor Jennifer McKelvey for the ward of Scarborough Rouge Park. Thank you both for being here this morning. Happy Friday to both of you. Happy New Year. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, Jennifer, I want to talk to you first because yesterday we had a long and sometimes fun conversation about all these new speeding cameras that are uh, popping up all over the city. And in every article that I read, it said, Councillor Jennifer McKelvey, comma, is a big fan uh, or a big advocate for this program. So t- tell me about why I, I should be happy when I see one of these pop up on my Waze alerts. You should be happy because they are in community safety zones. So they are in areas where our most vulnerable road users are crossing. So that is our children and our seniors. And the data that we're getting from the hospital from sick kids shows that these cameras are working and people are slowing down in these areas. Eric, I was hoping she would say something different so that I could I could come back with a retort. I got nothing to say. Well, because there's really nothing to say. But you've Um, already made me slow down, Jen. You've already taken my speed limit from 50 to 40. Which is which is like it's like rolling a wheelbarrow. That's how slow it feels. But the data is showing that Vision Zero is moving in the right direction. And we have a goal in the city of Toronto of zero fatalities on our roads. And we're not there yet. And uh, speed cameras are one tool to get there. The speed limit reductions are another. But we're also changing the infrastructure on our streets to make them safer for everyone. Listen, I, I, put, I put the question to you and you just gave me just about the best answer that any human being could give. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to ask Eric to criticize in some way, shape or form. I don't know how you want me to criticize. I mean, I don't know if Jennifer is a parent, but I know you are, Ben, and I am. And I can't imagine anything being more important at the end of the day than our children coming home from school safe. And so the only place that I've ever seen these um, set up are in school zones. And so if that slows people down, which I think is really important, then I think they're a good thing. Frankly, I think anything that increases the probability of our children coming home after school safe and sound, I could probably get behind. I can too. It's just at 4.30 in the morning when I'm driving to work, I'm not seeing too, too, 4.30 a.m. when I'm driving to work, I'm not seeing too, too many kids. But uh, listen, I take take both your points and I agree in large measure with both your points. Let's uh, move on uh, to Doug Ford's, uh, the story in the Toronto Star that Doug Ford and his Tories are set to abandon a massively lucrative fundraiser in the wake of the Greenbelt scandal. So this is the leaders' dinner that historically has brought in as much as $6 million into PC campaign coffers. Last year, it was sold out. It was the single largest political fundraiser in Canadian history, closed to the media. Um, But because of the Greenbelt scandal and because of some of the big donors that potentially could have been tied up in that, they're thinking of maybe punting the ball on this. I mean, taking a $6 million haircut, Eric, um, that's, a, that's a pretty big deal. Does that speak to the severity of this Greenbelt scandal? Um, no, I think it speaks to the severity of a premier who probably a little bit late to the game, but you got to get there eventually, is listening and becoming a little bit less tone deaf. But I think it goes back to what you were talking about in the segment before Think Tank, I think that premiers and prime ministers are going to be held to a different standard, yet 
they are allowed to do their jobs and live their lives. And one of the things that you have to do as a premier is to raise money. And so I don't have a big problem with raising $6 million at any single dinner. And in fact, I wish I was invited. <laughs> but if what you're going to tell me is that he's looking at the average Ontarian who's struggling and is saying now is not the right time, well, it's kind of hard to beat him up for that. But you know what? Not to sit on the fence, but if you told me this dinner was happening tonight, I'd have no problem with it. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer, w w what are your thoughts? I mean, the, the number is so big. The fact that they it's closed to the press, there's... There are some who would say, oh, that's, you know, this is this is uh, rife with the potential for closed door deals to happen. Is it is it the perception that they're worried about? Is that why they might be punting the ball and saying we're not going to do this uh, this dinner anytime soon? Well, maybe. I mean, I, I can't speak to, to their thought process around it, but I also don't think that they are particularly worried about their war chest either. Um, I'm sure that the, they have had, you know, many years to accumulate funds. They're probably in good shape, but I think they are being more reserved and cautious all around. I think that's a good thing. I think that um, certainly the new minister for municipal affairs, uh, Minister Calandra, um, he's really been taking the time and being thoughtful to get things right. I've seen that in the processing of approvals that he's done for the city. So I think everybody is just being more cautious. It's a good time for them to reset. It is the new year. It's always great to start the new year out with more goals. And uh, maybe this is just a part of a bigger plan. Let's talk about crime data in the city of Toronto as we've turned the page on 2023. It's a, it's a great time to look back at the crime statistics of last year and some interesting points, uh, Jennifer. Carjacking and vehicle thefts were up, shooting and homicides down, but but stabbings up. So in terms of violent crime on the person, it's sort of a it's, you know, one's up, one's down. And then when you've got and, and the, I think the one wild card that most of us didn't see this time last year was the the massive rise in anti-Semitic and, and just hate crimes in general. Uh, so as somebody who works on budgets, as somebody who's who speaks often with um, with members of the police, what are your thoughts? Are they equipped for this, the changing dynamics in crime statistics? No, um, but uh, I know they have a, an ask through the budget process for more funding. So I'm very hopeful that City Council will hear that call and will support that ask for investment, especially because we do see hate crimes are up across the city. It is very intensive on police resources to respond to all of the rallies and protests that are happening right now. That is taking them away from other things. We need them in our communities, keeping people safe. And so those redeployments that are starting to have an impact, we're seeing that on our response times. Um, but again, I don't want to let the good news here go. And that is that gun crime is down. And that shows yep. that the investments we're making in SafeTO are working. We are looking at our programming in a new way. We have the community safety officers. We have violence prevention programs. We have youth programming. They've all been really targeted at gun crime and making improvements there. So just like Vision Zero, it shows that when we invest in these things, um, they do pay off and the metrics are starting to show. Uh, car theft, I think that's something that all municipalities, not just Toronto, are struggling with. I've heard that at the Ontario Big City Mayor's meetings. And really, I think we need to, to put some pressure on the manufacturers as well. They have a role in this to, to help with the design of the cars and make sure that they are um, not so easy to steal. 
Dr. Eric Cam, I think uh, Jennifer's probably right. We, we should spend time focusing on the good work. It's really hard to turn that ship, especially as it relates to, to violent crime and shooting homicides in the city of Toronto. But we've, there, there are a lot of levers that the city's been able to pull at that have uh, sort of turn, turn that ship in, in the right direction. And so it's, it's sort of frustrating as a Torontonian where we've had our eye on that prize for so long, only to see all this other stuff that we didn't see coming rise as quickly as it has. You know, it's funny. I am um, overtly pro-police because I think they do an impossible job, especially in a city of this size. And I'm not an insider to the process. I'm sure they need more money and I'm sure they need more resources. Uh, but this is a really difficult time for a lot of people. And uh, I can only speak as a Jewish person in this city. I don't think there's a Jewish person in Toronto, 416905, that isn't a little bit more scared than they were a few months ago. And I know that there isn't a Jewish business owner that isn't more scared. And so, of course, this is incredibly troubling. And it's not just Jewish people. There's a lot of hate out there. And I think asking the police to clamp down and eliminate hate is probably too big a job. Yeah. But I would like to say this, and I'm not a criminology professor, but I really would like to see some of our laws have a little bit more bite I mean, I really think that the judicial system sometimes just frankly lets people off. When I hear some of the penalties that are assigned to some of the crimes, Ben, they make me laugh. And I just wonder that, you know, what is the deterrent in some cases? Three months of this or six months of that or a year of... I just don't understand. I just wish if people committed heinous, horrible crimes... They had their freedom taken away for a good long time and long enough that it would maybe maybe cause someone to think maybe I don't want to do that and end up in jail and lose my freedom. But I see far too many people back on the street far too fast. You know what? Let's uh, that's a perfect segue into one of the other topics that we we're going to talk about today. And Jennifer, I don't know your thoughts on sort of whether or not uh, in our criminal justice system, our sentencing is uh, emphasizes deterrence enough. But and this is just a feeling I get. But I read in the news yesterday that a woman who was found at the Abbotsford Airport in British Columbia with <laughs> with three kilos of cocaines and meth got six years in prison. That, to me, feels like a light sentence for what she was trying to bring into our country that was going to end up on the streets. Yeah, I don't think it reflects, you know, the impact that that has on the streets and how many different lives that that does impact. So I think that's that's absolutely fair. I think the other one is theft in general. We've just become, you know, really, really lax about. And, you know, right now people know that if you go into a store, you fill your pockets, you walk out, like there's there's not really much happening. Nobody's nobody's coming to respond to that. There is no real um, repercussion on it. And so I think you're you're right. Eric's right. Um, absolutely. That uh it's not a deterrent right now and we need to look at that. The other is the bail system and the bail system also needs to be reformed um, where we're seeing people, you know, violent offenders being released on bail. They're going out, they're reoffending, and that's contributing to a lot of the problems that uh, we have been seeing over the last couple of years. You know, I've, I've often asked the question uh, to friends and family and sometimes on either television or radio, what does one have to do in this country in order to spend their entire life behind bars? And I think the answer to that question is you need to have committed or uh, um, you need to have committed murder or be uh, jailed for murder, um, uh, convicted of murder 
40 years ago. Because 40 years ago, it feels like the, 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 the sentencing was far worse than it was for those who were being sentenced. Uh, and we have a little bit of good news in that uh, a, uh, two New Brunswick men who were found guilty 40 years ago of second degree murder uh, had their uh, murder charge overturned, the conviction overturned. And now they are two free men granted on the back nine of life. It, it, it makes me. Even this late in the game, Jennifer, it makes me feel good that a miscarriage of justice can be overturned. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, how heartbreaking to just think of what this was like for them and, you know, how wonderful that there are people out there fighting for justice that that works very hard to have them free. And I just hope they are enjoying the start of this new year and, um, going to be able to have all the support they need to to reintegrate with a society that's very different um, than when they first were put behind bars. Uh, Dr. Cam, uh, what are your thoughts on this? You know, I, I grew up uh, in a household where uh, my father would tell us the story of David Milgard uh, and uh, and sort of the, the heavy hand that he took in trying to reopen that case, which then led to DNA evidence uh, showing that this man who had been in prison for so many years was completely innocent. This has shades of that. And it reminds me of that. And it's to me, it's foundational of our of our system that better, uh, better 100 guilty men go go free than a single innocent man spend one day in jail. This to me writes a writes a historic wrong. It absolutely does. I remember the Milgard case very, very well. I'm 56, so I wasn't too old, wasn't too young. And all I remember actually was an interview on another network, as they say, with Milgard and his mom. And I remember them discussing the case after he had been released and they apologized and said they made a mistake. And I guess what just goes through my mind is what you're saying and what Jennifer's saying. It's so wonderful to be back and get your five minutes to be able to get the apologies. But what a shame. I mean, yes, I would, you'd much rather keep, uh, you'd much rather let a, a guilty person out than keep an innocent person in. But to have lost decades of your life for something you didn't do, I can't even imagine the psychological scarring effect that that would have on the rest of your life and just jaundice the way you see most things. So for these two gentlemen, I guess my wish for them would be that they can they can be happy and that it doesn't tarnish everything they do going forward um, with an air of skepticism and and negativity. I just hope they can find some happiness again. Well, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up because I'm really happy to tell our listeners that at the top of the next hour, we're going to be talking to somebody from the Innocence Project, Innocence Canada, rather, in New Brunswick, who worked on this file. And I'm going to ask them that. I'm going to ask them about these two gentlemen who have been set free, who have that weight uh, and the specter of guilt removed from them. I'm going to ask what their perspective is as they look to a completely new chapter of their lives. Thank you so much uh, for highlighting that. Very happy to be doing Think Tank today on this Friday morning with Dr. Eric Cam and Jennifer McKelvey. And um, I want to bring up a story that I read in the Star today. And this is um, the stock and trade of the Star. Uh, but it's by Martin Reg Cohen, who writes essentially what I believe is anytime a conservative uh, movement or, or party starts seeing an uptick in the polls, there is a discussion on the left about how, well, we can't let this happen. And the reason this is going to happen is because the, the, the left is so divided. Now, that's never a problem when the, we never hear about 
the left being divided when the liberals win government after government after government. But for some reason, when with the prospect of a Tory federal uh, win uh, for, uh, to take over the House of Commons in Ottawa, all of a sudden now it's imperative that the NDP and the liberals merge. Uh, Jennifer, you know, is, is, is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. You have a fair assessment. I saw the article and I could not agree with you more on your interpretation of that. It is forgetting about um, some of the big liberal wins that we've had in the past. And uh, I think the liberals are most successful when they play in the center. Yeah. And that's where they need to be. And the conservatives don't have a patent on fiscal responsibility. We need to remember that. And, you know, when the Liberals are more successful, it's when they are, um, you know, playing in the fiscal responsibility game, but also um, caring about social justice and all of those other issues that are important to Canadians. Yeah, uh, Dr. Uh, Eric Cam, uh, th- th- this article completely forgets about the history that the, the, the Tories actually don't know how to stay united. Anytime there's been a, a rift, they, the, each side takes their toys and goes home. And in the 90s, that cleared the way for Jean Chrétien to win back-to-back-to-back majority governments. Had he faced a united opposition, it's entirely possible that, that he would not have that accomplishment under his belt. And so I, 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 it's so, um, I find, short-sighted uh, and almost, a, almost like a willing blindness to, to the actual history of Canadian politics to suggest that 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 the the left would be more uh, would be more successful electorally uh, if if the left were united. You know, Ben, um, I'm getting tired of this. This is really old and it's really spent. And as I age, I have less patience for baloney. <laughs> and I find this this to be just liberal playbook baloney. And I can't improve on what you said, but allow me to say something else, which is. We're living in a time since really the subprime crisis in the United States where profit and capitalism and globalization, these have become really negative terms to a lot of people. Mm. And I find that one of the things the liberals do, well, there's two things that drive me insane about the left. One of them is, is when nervous, they start to hang those terms on the conservatives as if they're the only party that deals in a capitalist society. All the parties deal in a capitalist society, but somehow the liberals want you to remember that it's the it's the Tories that are profit-driven, money-hungry, and void of emotion, which number one is garbage. And number two, which no one's brought up, and I'll just say it because what the heck, is that the NDP are frankly irrelevant at the best of times. And so I find that if you're on the left, and you start screaming about this with the division here and the division there and capitalism here and globalization there, you might as well just throw the white flag and say, we've got nothing and we're starting to lose the battle. And, and Jennifer, it, it, to me, I, I don't know how an article like this gets written because the Liberal Party of Canada is the most successful political brand in Western political history. They're, they've been in power more more years than they've been out of power. And meanwhile, the NDP themselves see themselves, at least recently, as the moral conscience of this liberal government. Were it not for their interventions, there are a number of progressive accomplishments that simply would not have bubbled to the surface. They are responsible for holding this government to account and getting what they want 
through and passed and turned into law. And so they both have very good reasons to stay separate entities. And the fact that we are saying this at the tail end of eight years of probably, and this is not a judgment call, I think it's a real, a, a, a realistic assessment, the most left-leaning government that, the, that we have ever had on the federal level in Canada, to read this article saying, you want, like, talk about being greedy. There's, some, there's something to be said for the uh, alternating in, in, in federal politics just for the sake of democracy. And to read this, like, you want more of this? This is like, kind of greedy of you, Martin. Yeah, Canadians want a pragmatic, a reasonable government. Uh, I Again, I just keep coming back to, I think everybody values fiscal responsibility. Everybody wants a socially progressive world where everybody can be free and everybody can feel accepted. And uh, it doesn't need to swing all the way to the left uh, for us to get that out of our government. And you're absolutely right. We have had many successful uh, governments governing from the center. We have universal health care. Yeah. And we're one of have that that is one of the best examples of things that can be delivered from uh, a center liberal government. I'd certainly like to see them start to swinging more back into that direction. And I think that will be the best way for them to pave success in the next election. When, when Jacques Chrétien was the prime minister, he had the center of the political spectrum to himself. He was a liberal who was massively cutting costs in, in government in order to tame the, uh, the deficit. And also he, he could take over that side of the spectrum because the Tories were practically irrelevant and he was dealing with the Reform Party slash Canadian Alliance. So they gave him that side of the, the spectrum and then he was able to go all the way as far left as he wanted because the NDP were also very irrelevant at that time, too. So it's a the, the Liberal Party is is a political chameleon. They can be whatever they need to be at any point. They have chosen this path right now, which is why the the, the conservatives, I think, after eight years are on the ascendancy, not because of any of this nonsense that the that that the star is um, is listing off. Um, I wanted to end this with the two of you on on a list that means a great deal to me. And I hope it does to you as well. And I hope it does to the listeners as well. Rolling Stone at the end of last year put out the 150 greatest science fiction movies of all time. And I, I love science fiction movies. I go to almost all of them with my kids. Um, and I wanted to know, as you looked at this list, I mean, there are 150 movies on this list. Some of them shock me, and we can talk about them all. Do you have a favorite science fiction movie, both of you? Eric, let's start with you. I went through the list, and there are so many movies that I enjoyed, but I'm actually really glad. You know, there's always the debate about, you know, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? <laughs> Some people debate, is Back to the Future a sci-fi movie? And I think it is, and it is my favorite movie of the 1980s. I love Michael J. Fox. I love the whole concept. So I will every day fall back on Back to the Future. Uh, Jennifer, what about you? I don't know that I have a favorite. Um, I was happy to see a lot of Star Wars on there. We we used to take the kids out of school early to go watch Star Wars when the movies were released. So it's always a big deal in my house. But what jumped out at me and made me laugh looking through the list is the ones that resonated the most with me were actually sci-fi comedies. So you get a bit of both. Like idiocracy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, to, to, listen, to, 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 um, to prime the pump with some of our listeners, we put together a little bit of a montage with some great, um, some, some great um, quotes from some of these movies. At the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. 
Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I'll be back. Lord Vader. Yes, Admiral, what is it? The Emperor commands you to make contact with him. Move the ship out of the asteroid field so that we can send a clear transmission. Yes, my lord. All right. I mean, look, come on. These are these sci-fi movies do not get their due at the Oscars, at the Golden Globes. They are treated as genre. And what they don't realize is genre is everything now. Um, and uh, so, Jennifer, I, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned Star Wars, because that's one of the themes that I picked up on in this list. And I urge everybody to go to Rolling Stone magazine. Pick a side in this debate. But I think one of the worst sci-fi movies, one of those greatest disservices to passionate fans around the world was this uh, last trilogy in Star Wars, specifically um, the uh, the uh, sort of how, how um, one director handed over the reins to another who promptly burnt it to the ground, forcing the other guy to come back and rebuild. The narrative was all over the place. I was very disappointed with that last trilogy. Really? No, yeah. <laughs> it was great. And I think part of the, the charm was being able to experience Star Wars with my kids in the theater. I think that's part of what really also helped as well is that, you know, this new generation is able to enjoy uh, Star Wars just as much as we did. I, I'm sorry, Jennifer, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take issue. The four worst words in the history of Star Wars. Somehow Palpatine has returned. They didn't even have an answer for why he was back. They made it up on the spot. Um, ben, yes, sir. Do you realize what you're doing here is outing yourself as a middle-aged man? Because I have the exact same problem as you. But what we're really doing is we are remembering the first three Star Wars movies and where we were in our lives when they came out, and we're getting nostalgic. There's nothing wrong with the new takes on these things. They'll just never measure up to the originals because we think back to where we were in our lives, and it was a happier, quieter time. I disagree. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, Dr. Eric Cam, and I'm going to tell you. The, fir the first ones, were not for the success of the first ones, you wouldn't have the next six. So six, seven, eight, nine, if you include all of the... Uh all of the uh, spin-offs as well. The first movie was done in uh, the first movie of the new trilogy was done entirely for fan service. And it was done and it was great and it was optimistic. And when that movie ended and Ray was handing the lightsaber over to to uh, Luke Skywalker, that was symbolically one director handing the story over to the next. And what did that next Ryan Johnson do with that next one? He took that uh, at the beginning of the movie, took that lightsaber and chucked it over the hill, effectively taking that entire first movie and saying, worthless, don't care about it. I'm going to do my own thing. And so there was no narrative um, movement forward. It was one step forward, two steps back. Now, that being said, to change the subject just a little bit, Ryan Johnson, responsible for egregious crimes in the Star Wars universe, but also responsible for another movie that's on this on this um, list, Looper. I don't know if you guys saw that movie, but it is a tremendous time travel movie. I've never oh, heard yeah. of it. We, we watched it. I also will say, because I, I don't want to leave it unsaid, that Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure yes. also travel meter uh movie made the list and also had the sequel which was was a lot of yep, fun to watch yeah. and, um, and just not too long ago and the last movie that i'll, I'll mention before we uh, take a break is children of men my favorite dystopian future movie of all time it is beautifully shot it is excellently crafted and it stands the test of time uh to both of you for joining me today thank you so much i hope you have a great last day of vacation before the kids go back to school 